and welcome to Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. So, it's been a while since I've recorded anything, and I do apologize for that. I tried to figure out a new iPad. I have been working on a lot of different projects. I'm working on a website. I have been making some wax melts and candles. Work has been crazy. I also got two cute little piggies. If you haven't seen them, I will have some pictures and stuff up on the website, I'm sure, soon. They are pretty adorable. Um, They're little miniature pigs, and they keep me really busy. They're almost like toddlers. It's it's fun, but it is a lot of work. Uh, So, I've just been kind of crazy busy trying to find my equilibrium lately, but I've also been working on a bunch of new stories, so I have a bunch of notes um, ready to record. So today I'm actually recording this episode and a Patreon episode, so that will be up, and I am planning a possible trip. That will have that will include some more episodes and maybe some videos and stuff. That's going to be really fun and inspire a lot of new stuff. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm hoping to really get on track and get you guys some really great material because I'm working on some pretty cool stories, or at least stories that I feel are pretty cool right now. But today, I have a couple of really interesting things. Our murder for today is, I found, really fascinating. It is about a family of four that just disappears into thin air. It's really crazy. And it was years before they figured out what happened to this family. So today we're going to talk about the McStay family. So the McStays, like you said, there were four of them. There was Joseph McStay, who was 40, his wife Summer, who was 43, and then they had two sons, Gianni and Joseph. Gianni was four, and Joseph Jr. was three. They're a normal, happy family. They really... There wasn't anything off about this family. There wasn't anything that other family members or friends could put a finger on that would say, you know, why they would just disappear or why anybody would want to hurt this family. They um, they were a normal, happy family. Joseph Fixday started his own designing um his own business designing indoor water fountain features and he was really happy about this because it gave him flexibility he could spend more time with his family and he provided a really good living for them and I mean it was his own business and most people dream of owning their own business so he's living this American dream he's making good money he's providing a good living for his family and he's able to spend a lot more time at home with his wife and his two little kids. So then they bought their dream house uh, in Fallbrook, California in the winter of 2009. 
and it needed a lot of work. It wasn't like they went out and just bought this big mansion that was ready, you know, move-in ready and perfect. They bought this house that they envisioned being exactly what they wanted, and they started renovating it and doing all this work. And they spent their time working on their house, and they took day trips in California, and doing things with their kids. They were very family-oriented. They also had a couple of dogs that they really loved and were really devoted to. So, I mean, this was just a normal family. Then on February 4th, 2010, they just vanished without a trace. Like, people stopped hearing from them, and that was it. They just stopped existing so the last conversation that their family would have with joseph and summer was on february 4th 2010 and that's why they know that that was the last time anybody had really seen them that's when they kind of ceased to exist patrick mcstay joseph's father said he talked to his son every day And this was a daily ritual that they had. In one interview, he said that's actually what he misses the most. It's just those daily talks, just those little things that they used to do. Anyway, he said that that morning it wasn't really any different except that his son was in a hurry because he had a lunch meeting with the business associate. So he was getting ready to do that, and so they talked for just a bit, and then he had to hurry and get off the phone. Summer had also talked to her sister that day. Her sister had just had a baby, and so she had talked to her sister that day, and there wasn't anything unusual. They talked often. Um, She was also very close to her family. Then after 5.47 that evening, no one hears from the family ever again. On February 9th, the family, um, their family hadn't heard from them in several days, which was very unusual. Joseph's father usually talked to him every single day, and now they haven't heard from them in days. So they start to, you know, ask around, what's going on? Has anybody heard from them? And they're checking with Joseph's business and, you know, his business associates. Has anybody heard from them? And they get get one of his business associates to go and check the house. Well, this, this guy goes and checks the house. And he found that the dogs were in the backyard and they had food in their bowls. And so at this point, the family thought, well, maybe they just took a short day trip and didn't tell anybody you know, and decided to extend it or something because, and got somebody to take care of the dogs because they love their dogs. They wouldn't leave their dogs unattended. And the fact that the dogs were being taken care of told them everything was okay. So they, they just kind of dropped it at that point, but it was just, strange that the family didn't mention this and still hadn't talked to them because usually if they were taking a trip they talked about that trip nine days later 
so nine days after nobody had heard from the family and the last time anybody had heard from them this was february 13th joseph's brother goes to the house because at this point they're like okay we still haven't heard from them nobody's hearing from them let's take a trip over there let's find out what's going on so joseph's brother goes to the house and he finds no sign of break a break in, and you know everything looks normal, but he did see that there was a window that was partially opened, and he used this window to get into the house. And what he found in the house was really strange. So he found food rotting in the kitchen. He found Summer's prescription sunglasses that she wouldn't have left the house on a trip without. Um, The dogs were in the yard and there was food in the bowl. So somebody was feeding the dogs. But if somebody was coming over and feeding the dogs and stuff, why was there food left out in the kitchen that's just rotting? Why would the family leave and leave food just sitting out? So the brother left a note for the person who was feeding the dog and said, you know, he was very worried about the family and asked that person to please call them and, you know, let them know what they knew. That evening, the brother got a call and this confirmed their biggest fears because this call actually came from animal control they were feeding the dogs and were actually about to take the dogs in because they had been left for so long without having food or water left out for them. So they had been going by and checking and because they hadn't had anything, they had been feeding them. And they were at the point that they were going to be taking them in because they were seeing them as abandoned pets. And so now the family's like, okay, yeah, something's wrong. They would not leave their beloved dogs alone to fend for themselves without somebody taking care of them. So on February 15th, Joseph and the family made a missing persons report. The police go to the, phone, to the home and they don't find any signs of a struggle, but... Because they were renovating the house, there were rooms that were blocked off. There wasn't a lot of furniture. You know, it was kind of hard to tell in some places if there had been a struggle. But, you know, also there was food left out. There was food left out that was rotting. It looked like the family had just gotten up and walked out expecting to be back in five minutes and just never returned. Interviews with family and friends found that the family had actually made plans between the time that February 4th when they went missing and the February 15th when the report was made. This included there was a friend that was helping them paint and that painting hadn't been finished and so they were coming over that weekend on February 6th and going to finish painting. So that plan was already made. Um, 
as I said, Summer's sister had just had a baby and she was planning to go to her sister's house during that time. You know, so they had plans that they had already made with friends and family and yet they had just disappeared without telling anybody. A neighbor's security camera also caught the family car leaving the neighborhood on the evening of February 4th and the car was never shown returning to the neighborhood. Their car was found in an impound lot um, for a traffic violation in San Isidro, a border town on February 8th. Of course, this wasn't reported to their place in Fallbrook because why would it be? And, you know, so the family wasn't made aware of that. Nobody was made aware that their car was impounded and that, you know, it had been left at this border town and stuff. Well, then this kind of took the, it took the investigation in a new direction. So when the car was seized, uh, by detectives, what they found seemed perfectly normal. You know, the seats were adjusted to the right positions and there was no sign of foul play. But there was also brand new toys in the car that was unopened for the kids. And why would they have brand new toys in the car for the kids that they had purchased during this time that the kids never got to open? And, you know, it was just strange. The parking camera in the lot where the car was towed showed that the car had not arrived until February 8th. Remember the last time anybody had heard from the family was February 4th and the car left the neighborhood on February 4th and the car was shown going into the lot on February 8th. So this was four days after the last contact with the family. Um, on March 5th, 2010, a few weeks after the family went missing, a new lead emerged. There was a video at the U.S.-Mexico border that showed a family that fit the McStay's description. Now, this was a very fuzzy video. It was a security video that showed a man and a woman and two small children crossing the border on February 8th around 7 p.m. So this started some questions, you know, did they disappear, go off the grid, decide to run to Mexico? What were they running from? The video was really too grainy to get details, you know, they couldn't see faces, they couldn't positively identify, yes, this was the McStay family, but it looked like them, it fit the time that the car was driven into the lot, you know, the car was abandoned at the lot, so it was impounded. It just, it kind of fit everything, okay? So this kind of made detectives decide the family went to Mexico. The family ran to Mexico, they're in Mexico somewhere, and you know, what can we do? This is two grown adults and their own children. We can't force them to come out of hiding in Mexico if they went on their own volition, right? Family members don't believe that this is the case. 
they they just they still don't feel like this family would just leave and not say anything it just does not seem like them but the police decided that that's what happened this is an easy fit this is you know it it just seems to make sense to them so they don't stop their investigation but they decrease their emphasis on the case and it just kind of kind of stops them looking in other directions and there were things that discredit this possibility that you know the family kind of points out but you know the police were still once they settled on this they kind of stuck with this that the family was in Mexico but there was a fact that Summer's passport had expired and she had never gotten a new one and um, Joseph did have a passport that was up to date one of the children's birth certificates was found at home so they only had one child's birth certificate and without proper identification for all of the family members they wouldn't be able to get across the border so detectives did point out that summer had changed her name multiple times within her lifetime and that she may have done this again and this may have been part of the reason that they had had to run that she may have had something to do with this however they did not find passports open in any of her previous names on april 2nd 2010 the police department handed the investigation over to the fbi because they would be better able to handle this missing person's case at this point they were out of leads they couldn't go into mexico and they just they didn't know what to do so the fbi um they did kind of they coordinated with mexican police to look for the family they set up tip lines the local police continued to really push this belief that the family had traveled to Mexico and stayed. Um, they told media outlets that this is what happened and that there were searches on the home computer that indicated that they were interested in traveling to Mexico. Um, there were searches, you know, looking for what was needed for children to cross the Mexican border and things to do in Mexico, things like that, that showed that they might have been planning a trip to Mexico. So by the end of 2010, it seemed that the family had just vanished into thin air. There was just nothing. In November, Patrick McStay, Joseph's father, began going through his son's email to find any kind of leads. He would notify detectives if he found anything suspicious, but all of this, turned out to be a dead end there just wasn't anything and despite the fact that none of their accounts had been touched since february 4th their bank accounts hadn't been touched since that day their phones hadn't been touched there hadn't been any type of access to any of the family's accounts police said that they just went off the grid and were living in mexico and that was it it was just thought that this family had run away. 
nobody heard from them. There were no leads. There was nothing. Nobody had any clues. Everybody that worked with Joseph had been interviewed. Everybody that knew the family. Everybody in the neighborhood. And nobody seemed to know anything. It was like this family, they could trace their steps up to a certain point that day. And then they were just gone. And then on November 11th, 2013, three years later, a motorcyclist found human remains near the desert of Victoriaville, California. This was a hundred miles north of the McStay home. And when investigators came out there, they found two shallow graves. And each of these graves contained an adult and a child. There was also a three-pound sledgehammer that was found at the site. These remains were later identified as Joseph Summer Gianni and Joseph Jr. McStay, and their deaths were ruined were ruled a homicide. They were each found to have died by blood force trauma. It was thought that the sledgehammer was the murder weapon. On November 5th, 2014, so a year later, Charles Merritt, a business associate of Joseph's, was arrested for the murder of the family. So Charles Merritt was actually the business associate that Joseph was going to meet on the morning of February 4th, the one that he was in a hurry to get off the phone with his father for that he was going to have that lunch meeting with, that was who he was going to meet. Charles Merritt owed the family over $30,000. He had gambling problems. And Joseph had graciously loaned him money to help him with these gambling debts, to help him get out of some trouble. And so they thought that was probably a motive. They found DNA in the family's car that was Charles's. Uh, It was also in the home. They found DNA in the home. And they found forged checks that he continued to write for himself after the family disappeared that was supporting his gambling habit. So these were checks that he was forging from Joseph's business. On June 10th, 2019, Merritt was found guilty of murdering the McStay family. And January 12th, 2020, Merritt was sentenced to life in prison and given the death penalty for the murders. Now, it's worth mentioning, um, I did watch a video, um, I watched several videos, in fact, and in one of these videos, Merritt was being interviewed after the um, disappearance of the McStay family, and he was very calm, he was talking about how he, he had seen Joseph that morning, he'd had lunch with them. And he had no clue what had happened to this family. And then he later did admit what he did. 
this man gave multiple interviews to police and police never suspected him they never suspected him they never took dna from him to check and see if you know they were finding anything in the car in the house this man was never a suspect until after the bodies were found and they were taking DNA and prints from everybody and looking to see what they could find. And he came up. So this man had almost managed to get away with it. If the graves hadn't been as shallow as they were, he probably would have. Um, but this is the story of the McStay family. Very, very sad. Horrible. Because this family tried to help this man. And he just wanted more, I guess. And wasn't happy with that. Anyway, he is still in prison on death row. And he's just waiting out his sentence to be executed. And so I also have a mystery for you. And this mystery I found really interesting. And I've had this, I've had um, these two little girls on my list for a long time and was looking into other things. And I'm really excited to bring this to you. Um, so do you believe in reincarnation? So today we're going to talk about children who remember being somebody else before they were born into their current lives. Um, and we're going to start with the Pollock sisters because I find theirs really fascinating. And I found another story about a little boy that was just really, really interesting. Um, this has always interested me. I just, I find it fascinating. And so whether you believe in this or not, it's just really interesting the things that kids come up with and the things that they can seem to know even that they shouldn't be able to know. So let's dive right into this one. So John Pollock was raised in a ch the Church of England, but he converted to Catholicism. And despite this, he was actually a big believer in reincarnation. Uh, he had read a novel on the subject of reincarnation when he was nine. And this made him really believe in this subject matter. Um, he was such a believer that from the time he was a small child, he would pray that God would give him proof that reincarnation existed. So he really was a huge believer in reincarnation. Florence grew up a member of the Salvation Army, but converted to Catholicism when she married John. She did not believe in reincarnation at all. She didn't share this belief with John. Uh, but they, they married, and they had two sons. And then in 1946, they had their first daughter, Joanna. 
1951, the family moved from Whitley to Hexham in Northumberland, where they had their second daughter, Jacqueline. So now they have two boys and two girls. And during this time, John and Florence ran a grocery and milk delivery business. They were really busy with this business. They spent all their time doing this business. And so Florence's mother stayed with the girls. And she was really their main caregiver. Now, not to say that John and Florence weren't close to their daughters. They were. It's just during the day and early evening, you know, Florence's mother, the grandmother, was really like the center of the home. She took care of the children. She, you know, cooked and cleaned and took care of everything. And then John and Florence would come home and they would spend time with the children of the evening. So the girls were inseparable. Even though there were a couple years difference, Joanna was older and she was very motherly toward Jacqueline, and Jacqueline enjoyed this. She liked being mothered by her older sister. Joanna really enjoyed dressing up in costumes and play acting. She was very sweet. She shared well with other children. She just loved life. She loved to pretend. And there was one really odd thing, though. As happy as she was, she began saying that I will never be a lady. And her parents found this very odd. They never really understood why she would say this, but she said this often. But she was a very happy little girl. Now, Joanna was uh, thin. Well, Jacqueline was a little bit stockier built. She also had a very distinct round birthmark on her waist, on her waist, Jacqueline did. And then when she was three, Jacqueline fell on a bucket and she cut her forehead from about the root of her nose up over her right eye. And this left the scar that was indented and it was really, really prominent when she would get cold. So really, the scar really stood out when she got cold. But these girls were very happy. They, they were very close to each other. They were very happy little girls. And then on Sunday, May 7th, 1957, 11-year-old Joanna and six-year-old Jacqueline were walking to church with their friend Anthony. He was a little boy around their age. And they're walking along this sidewalk that has a wall along one side. So the sidewalk runs alongside the road. And then on the other side of the sidewalk is a wall. They're walking to church and they're struck by a car. Witnesses say that the kids were just thrown around like balls. And then they ended up pinned between the car and the wall. So this car was driven by a woman who had recently had her own children removed from her care. Uh, She was really depressed. And so she had taken what she had thought was 
a lethal cocktail of medications, climbed behind the wheel, wheel of the car, and was intent on killing herself. Witnesses had seen her driving erratically through the neighborhood, and she later told police she never saw the children. She just was intent on ramming herself in the wall into that wall, and I guess the kids just happened to be there. She never saw them. All three children died. Joanna and Jacqueline died at the scene, and Anthony died on his way to the hospital. And this woman lived, and she was taken to a psychiatric hospital. John and Florence, of course, were devastated. Like any parents would, they wanted nothing more than to have their daughters back. You know, they... They were completely devastated at the loss of their little girls. John felt that he was being punished for praying for proof of reincarnation. But he was still very adamant that while he was being punished because his little girls were taken away from him, that these girls were going to be born back into the family, that they were going to be his proof but that he was being punished for praying for this proof by them being taken from him to be born back as somebody else. And this belief almost cost him his marriage because Florence was, she didn't believe this. And she eventually just became very upset and angry at him. But he did make the the announcement that they would have another set of girls and these girls would be Joanna and Jacqueline reincarnated. That year Florence became pregnant again. And in 1958, there was no ultrasound technology. But, you know, doctors were still doctors. And, you know, they could still fairly accurately tell if a woman was having a single birth or twins. I mean, sometimes it wasn't completely accurate. But the doctor did a palpitation, um, did fetal heartbeat you know, check the heartbeat all throughout the pregnancy. And there were no twins in her family. Twins didn't run in the family. This wasn't a genetic thing. However, on October 4th, 1958, despite the doctor predicting a single birth, Florence gave birth to identical twin girls, Jillian and Jennifer. Just as John had predicted, they had a set of girls a year after their daughters, Joanna and Jacqueline, had been killed. And from the very beginning, there was something a little strange about these girls. They were identical. They were identical twins born from the same egg or monozygote twins 
except that Jennifer had a round birthmark on her waist and one on her forehead from the root of her nose going up over her right eye. These birthmarks matched the birthmark that Jacqueline had on her waist and the scar that Jacqueline had from falling on the bucket. In fact, the birthmark that Jennifer had on her forehead was slightly indented and more prominent when she was cold. So this was very strange. Also, even though they were identical twins, identical in most ways, and this was later checked, tests were run later, I believe in the 80s, and it was proved that they were identical twins. Jillian was thinner, and Jennifer was built a little stockier. So, there were other things. As the girls got older, there were things that, behaviors that the family noticed. Things such as the girls being very close to their grandmother and looking for guidance and support from their grandmother. But when the, when Florence got pregnant, she quit work. And she decided she was going to stay home and take care of this baby. So when these twins were born, she wasn't working. She didn't, she stayed home with these twins. And yet, they still turned to their grandmother for love and support more than they did their mother. I mean, they loved their mother, but they, they turned to their grandmother more. So they were very close to her. And this is the same grandmother that raised Joanna and Jacqueline. Jillian often mothered Jennifer, which was the same relationship that Joanna and Jacqueline had. The girls enjoyed combing their father's hair, which was a favorite pastime of Jacqueline and Joanna's. And when the girls were three months old, the family moved to Whitley Bay. And as jo Jillian and Joanna, or as Jillian and Jennifer got older, they began to talk of living in Hexham, which they couldn't have possibly remembered because they were only three months old when they moved. But they would talk about living in this other small town and give details that matched Hexham. So when the twins were three, the family took toys out of a box that had been Joanna and Jacqueline's. These toys had been boxed up in the attic and the family took them out, opened them up and gave them to the girls and Jillian automatically claimed toys that had been Joanna's and Jennifer claimed the ones that had been Jacqueline's. They both said that they were gifts from Santa, which had been correct. They had been gifts from Santa to their deceased sisters. 
they were able to correctly name the stuffed animals, um, giving them the same names that their sisters had given them. And they didn't fight over any of the toys. It was just automatically, these are my toys and those are your toys. When they were four, the family moved back to Hexham and the girls were able to tell the family how to get to a park that had been a favorite of Joanna and Jacqueline's, even though Jennifer and Jillian had never been to this park. They still were able to give detailed description of how to get to this park and what this park looked like and where their favorite swings were at this park. Florence occasionally overheard Jillian and Jennifer discussing details of the accident that had taken their sister's lives. Uh, she reported that once Jill, she found Jillian cradling Jennifer's head, saying, the blood's coming from where the car hit you. John recalled when he identified the girl's bodies, Jacqueline had bandages on her head above her eyes. So these are things that, um, that was something that the girls were doing that wasn't in front of the adults, wasn't in front of other people. They were talking about it just amongst themselves. They, when they had moved to um, Hexham, they started talking about the car accident, um, telling their parents the car was coming to get them they would point to the exact place where the accident had happened and say that's where the car killed us. Uh, Jillian once pointed to Jennifer's birthmark on her head and said that's where you fell in the bucket. And when the twins were four and a half, John put on a smock that Florence had once wore when she delivered milk. Now again, Florence had quit work before the girls were born so this smock had been put up. Um, she had not worn this smock. And the girls had never seen her work. So when she, he put this smock on, he was going to go paint. And he put this smock on. And Jennifer asked him why he was wearing Mama's coat she wore when she delivered milk. Jennifer also got mad at Jillian because Jillian didn't have this memory of Florence wearing the smock. And the thing was that at the time, Joanna went to school. And Jacqueline wasn't in school. And so Jacqueline had seen her mom in the smock going out to deliver the milk. But Joanna hadn't. So Jennifer had this memory that Jillian didn't have. And so Jennifer was getting mad at Jillian because she didn't have this memory of this spot, of this smock. But Jennifer was asking her dad, why are you wearing mom's smock? That's the smock, or coat, she called it. That's the coat that mama wore to deliver milk even though Florence had never worn the smock in front of Jennifer. When Jillian and Jennifer began to write, when they got into school and they were beginning to write, 
Jillian picked up the pencil properly and immediately learned with no difficulty. However, Jennifer really struggled. She would was trying to learn to hold her pencil, but she kept reverting back to um, holding her pencil in her fist, up, holding it completely upright in her fist like a younger child. This was something that Jacqueline had struggled with. In fact, when Jacqueline was killed, she was just learning how to write. And teachers had told her mom that they were going to have to do something with Jacqueline because she wasn't learning to hold her pencil correctly. She was holding it in her fist upright and not holding it in the correct position and that she needed to work on that. Jennifer, her entire life struggled with this. Even into being a, a young woman, she would revert back to holding a pencil in her fist rather than holding the pencil correctly. So as the girls grew older, they began to forget their memories of their past life. They accepted their parents' belief with mild skepticism, and they just kind of went on with their lives. However, in 1981, Jillian began to have inner visions. So she began to have these thoughts, these visions that were coming to her of herself and her brothers playing in a sandbox at a house with a garden, lawns, and an orchard that perfectly matched the house in Wickham where the family had lived when Joanna was three. Jillian had never been to Wickham, and yet she described this house perfectly. She described everything in this house, everything in these memories. She'd never seen pictures, and she'd never been to this place. So the family all swore that they didn't tell the twins anything about their sisters or the family's life before the twins were born. But it's really hard to say for sure that nobody gave them these details, that nobody talked about them, that nobody said, oh, you're just like your sister. There could have been little things that gave things away. There could be other possibilities. They could have talked about this accident and the girls overheard and just thought that these were memories. And there are a lot of possibilities. You can't say for sure, but the Pollock sisters, um, their story has always been considered one of the biggest proofs of reincarnation because it was so well documented and very well studied. So this one was really interesting. There was another one that I found, James Lingen. Lingen? Leninger, sorry. James Leninger. James was born April 10th, 1998, so a much more recent. He is in his 20s, early 20s now. And according to his father, things became noticeable in February 2000 when James was about 22 months old. His father took him to Kavanaugh Flight Museum outside of Dallas, Texas, and he was 
fascinated with the World War II exhibit. After this, he started to show a knowledge of planes and flying a 22-month-old shouldn't have had. And this was stuff he wouldn't have been picking up in any of the museums or the shows or anything that he would have been watching. So this was knowledge that he shouldn't have had. After a second trip to the museum a few months later, James began crashing his planes into the family coffee table. In fact, they said that he would crash it over, crash his planes over and over, saying, airplane crash on fire. And he did this so many times, the table ended up with dents and scratches in it. His father traveled a lot for work, and so James and his mother would go to the airport to see his father off and to pick his father up from the airport. And every time they would go to the airport, James would say, Daddy, airplane crash on fire. And his father would try to stop him, but it continued. I mean, he continued to really insist this airplane crash on fire. Around this same time, James began to have these nightmares. And he would start crying out in his sleep, airplane, airplane crash, plane on fire, little man can't get out. After a few months, James began to talk about his dreams. So he began to tell his parents more information. As James got older and got the, developed the language to talk in more detail, he was able to give a little more detail. But um, he was able to tell his parents that he was in a Corsair fire fighter plane that was shot down by the Japanese. He said his plane flew off a boat named Natoma. His parents found an escort carrier that was stationed in the Pacific during World War II named Natoma Bay. His parents kept asking him who the little man in his dream was and he would always respond me or James. They asked if there was anybody with him, and James said Jack Larson. When James was two and a half, his father was looking at a book, The Battle of Iwo Jima, 1945. And this was a book that his dad was planning to give to his father for Christmas. James pointed to a picture showing an aerial shot at the base of an island where Mount Suribaki, which was a dormant volcano, sits. James told his father, that's where my plane was shot down. By the age of three, James was drawing fighting scenes involving planes, and he was sign signing his artwork, James Three. James's father began to investigate and found a Natoma Bay reunion group, which he attended. And this is where he learned there was only one person from that carrier that was lost during the Battle of Iwo Jima. And this was a 21-year-old pilot named James Hutton, James Houston Jr. So this is where James III came from, James Houston Jr. So this James was the third one. 
Jack Larson was a was actually flying a plane next to James Houston and he had lived through the battle. James also gave details of his life as James Houston Jr. and these details were confirmed with Mr. Houston's sister. So there doesn't seem to be any reason for the family to be trying to commit fraud or anything. Um, they did publish a book, but this book wasn't published until James was 11. Uh, they refused to put him on talk shows or do anything like this. They published the book, but there was no certainty of the payout of this book. They really tried to protect their son. Um, they, they weren't putting him out there. They weren't trying to make money off of him. So there really didn't seem to be anything that they were trying to do as far as making money and stuff. It really seemed like this family was very genuine as far as this was going on and it was really strange they had sought help for their son um they had gotten involved with somebody who understood these past life um memories and were trying to help him through that just really trying to figure out what was going on and why now, there are many, 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 many stories of things like this. Things that kids will just come out and say. Things that are creepy um, that have happened to people that people report. Um, I have just a few other kind of creepy stories similar to this that I found online so take them with a grain of salt. There was one uh, where a woman had reported coming out of a grocery store and her three-year-old daughter and all of these kids I believe are between the ages of three and five when they do this um, but her three-year-old daughter points to a car and says that car hit me and then goes into detailing a, an accident that had occurred where she had been hit by a car. And of course the mom knows this little girl's never been hit by a car. But she goes through this whole detailed scene of when she was another girl, she got hit by a car. And then she died, and then she started growing in her mommy's tummy. So, there was one woman who reported her three-year-old nephew saw a magnet on her refrigerator from Arizona. And he told her that he used to live by red rocks like that with his other family. He said his first family had dark, straight hair. And this little boy had curly blonde hair. And that his family had a mom, dad, and a brother. And then he went out into the desert too close to dark and was eaten by coyotes. And that was all he said on the subject. And then he went back to eating his lunch. So a woman said that her three-year-old son 
told her about being a ballerina on a stage. And he gave very vivid details of lights and music and even applause. And this whole, you know, what it was like being a ballerina. And then he told her, I was on a party boat and I fell into the water and then poof, I was here. A couple of weeks later, his dad was actually on a business trip. And so a couple of weeks later, when his dad got back, he told his dad the same story. Word for word, no changes. But then he never talked about the story again. They never pushed him to continue talking about the story. And these are just really kind of creepy, strange I guess it would be really weird for your kid to say something like that. My kids never said anything like that. As far as I know, I never said anything like that. But I guess it seems like a lot of people have those kinds of experiences. But yeah, these are kids who've had past life memories. I guess that's all for today. I. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye.